This episode of Bouts Talking Bouts is brought to you by Bare Knuckle Betting Shark. Winning parlays. If you're looking for them in BKFC, you got to be checking out BK Bet Shark. Here's the thing. $50 buys, you get a personalized bet slip. It's based on your own budget. You can be flexible. It is what works for you. And this guy's got the receipts. You can check out all the winning tickets. You can peep them, and you can do so at Bare Knuckle Betting Shark. Check him out on Instagram and get with it. Got them personalized betting slips going on, $50 buys. All right, on this episode of Bare Knuckle Radio, very excited to be welcoming on an individual as BKFC 56 looms ever closer and encroaching closer to 2024, so figured it'd be great to have BKFC commentator Sean Wheelock on Bare Knuckle Radio. How's your day going there, man? Great, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, this is uh, the day before I travel to... Well, I think it's probably the biggest show. I don't even know if probably we need that qualifier. I think this is the biggest show in, in BKFC history. You know, we've had milestones. The first one, obviously, the next big one was the Art of Lobot versus Polly Malignaggi card that probably Knuckle Mania won with Paige Van Zandt's debut when she fought Britain Hart. And we've continued to grow through the Knuckle Manias, our first time in Albuquerque and first time in Denver. This is definitely the biggest one. I look at this card as six main or co-main events, probably main events, and a really good undercard. If you see Keaton Vandermeer versus Esteban Rodriguez on the prelim, yeah, yeah. that's a feature fight on a lot of cards. That's really good. I'm, I'm extremely, I'm always psyched, but I'm extremely psyched for this show. Yeah, and I mean, such a cool journey because I understand even before your commentating work with BKFC, you were more of like a consultant for David Feldman, like in regards to like regulatory issues that could pop up, like recommendations for fighters and referees. So it must be interesting from your perspective to be, I guess, ready to get into, you know, what is understandably being called the biggest event in BKFC history. Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's just been a dream job. You know, I, I've been very fortunate. You know, I, I came from soccer when I was really, really young, just basically out of high school doing MLS. And then um, I got a big break when I got hired by Pride in 2006. At the last, going to Bellator was a huge break being there from the beginning. And in that gap between Bellator and BKFC, you know, I was doing M1, I was doing Roy Jones Jr. boxing, I did karate combat, there were a lot of one-off shows that I did. I did a few, um, what else did I do? I, I did a few one championships, things like that, but David Feldman and I started talking in June of 2016, so it's a full two years before show number one. And it was always the expectation that I'll be your play-by-play commentator when you launch, but in the meantime, let me work on things that I enjoy doing in this business, like working with commissions and introducing you to fighters and building relationships with managers that you may not have. So I've been extremely fortunate in my career to work for a lot of different promotions and meet a lot of people and do fights in a lot of different countries. So I have a pretty good contact list. So all of that, just serving as a general consultant for two years, seeing us launch in June of 2018, and where we are now is we moved to December 2nd, 2023. I think it's phenomenal. Um, Obviously, the UFC... And, and Art Davy, I think you know, most people know Art Davy. I call him my later in life dad. We have that, that type of family relationship. But Art's growth when he launched it on the UFC 
in the first five years was spectacular. I think this is as spectacular what David Feldman has done in the first five years of BKFC. Yeah, absolutely. And talking about just like the international connectivity and just the regulatory aspects I was kind of touching on a bit ago, I would think that this coming calendar year would be especially exciting for you. I mean, great things done already in, you know, the Thailand market with BKFC as well as, you know, coming off of BKFC Bulgaria and BKFC Leeds. So like, how excited are you for, I guess, that continued international expansion through 2024? I'm happy they're coming through my neck of the woods in Canada, but how happy are you in general for that expansion? Yeah, absolutely thrilled. My wife is English. My two girls are half English. So being in the UK is always really special. Bulgaria is a country I commentated MMA in when I was in M1. I knew that would be a great market, and we sold out 6,500 in Sofia on that debut show. Uh, Canada, I've done, when I'm going back to when I was a soccer commentator, I actually commentated, weirdly enough, and it wasn't me, it was just a quirk of schedule, but I commentated the first ever Toronto FC match um, at, at uh, BMO Field in, I think, 2006 or two, no, 2007 uh, on U.S. television. So I love Canada. We, we always had great shows in Canada with Bellator, always had big crowds. And so Canada, uh, and I know you're a Canadian, so I'm not just saying this for your benefit, but <laughs> Canada is always a, a country that I love to the point of probably I like in Canada. I just think it's such a great culture, great people, great food, and the fight fans are always spectacular. They always turn out. So to be now going to Canada as well, I think is amazing. And it's the international growth. You know, our, our Davey is the one who always says to me, and I'll repeat him, that there are two really true international sports out there, and that's soccer and fighting, and it's true. And just in my career, I believe I've commentated uh, fighting in one form or another from bare-knuckled MMA to Letway in 26 countries, 26 or 28, and that's the international nature of it. So the response that we've had in the UK, what we had in Bulgaria, what we've had in Thailand, um, we've had tryouts in South Africa. I think we're going to crush it in Canada, I have no doubt. Uh, I know we have interest in Japan, um, certainly from other European nations. Uh, I think you will see that continue. And then in the U.S., you know, in 2024, you're going to see Oklahoma. You're going to see Oregon. Um, a lot of states are right there or, or will be right there when we come into January. Uh, it's, it's amazing now that this has gone from, maybe it's not so amazing, maybe it's predictable, but it's gone from six years ago, this was the world's worst idea for a lot of regulators, to when can we get you guys booked in our state. But that's the trajectory that our baby had with the UFC, from people calling it dirty fighting to now being an absolute mainstream professional sport well that was kind of the thing because it was almost like the ufc did get that certain tag early on or that certain narrative that they were kind of you know straying away from the regulation or more trying to lean into the marketing of it as like blood sport whereas it seems like the bkfc has like really put out there a lot of like the empirical evidence like hey there's not you know as much rate of serious injury in this sport like more aesthetic damage so i feel like that's kind of behooved the growth of the sport as well and obviously you've played a role in all of that too yeah well you know what and one thing i'll credit david feldman on this bkfc is one of three fight promotions in the world that travels a full-time doctor dr warren wang travels with one championship um uh and uh the ufc the uh, jeff um 
nothing. If Jeff Blatt, Jeff Davidson, Dr. Jeff Davidson travels with the UFC, and we do with Dr. Don Muzi, uh, who's a neuroanesthesiologist, was at the Mayo Clinic, uh, came to us because we were doing so many early events in Florida, and he was the chief ringside physician in Florida. So the fact that we travel a doctor with us, Dr. Muzi has compiled a study, it's been published in scholarly journals, looking at the injuries. And I knew from being a fight guy and being around combat sports my whole life that you weren't going to see the concussive blows. Simply people are not going to be hitting as hard without gloves, and that is certainly shown through. Uh, we could talk about that if you want, and historically, why gloves evolved. Uh, I always love telling people about that, about why they moved from the London Prize Ring rules to the Marcus of Queensbury rules and introduced gloves. But we thought, well, we might see a bunch of orbital fractures. We might see a bunch of hand fractures. And the data from Dr. Muzi, which he has compiled, shows that concussions are certainly lower than pro boxing and pro MMA, but orbital fractures, hand fractures, facial fractures are all way lower. Yeah, lacerations are there, people get cut, and people who aren't really smart to the business, I think, have a visceral reaction. That's why in pro wrestling, they juice, they dig themselves, they cut themselves, because you get that pop from the crowd, people see blood. But you talk to any experienced ringside or cage-side physician, they will call those superficial wounds. They're worried about really um, concussive blows, brain trauma, and that is at a very, very low rate in bare knuckle. And again, it's way lower than in pro boxing or pro MMA, which is fantastic. You know, I, I'm never someone who, who says, oh, this stuff is safe. None of this is safe. But... Really, the standard, the threshold that you have to ask yourself, if you're a regulator, if you're on an athletic commission, if you're an executive director or executive officer of an athletic commission, is this any less safe than what we're already allowing? And you're seeing the common sense answer with now BKFC having done uh, over 800 fights. Compared to MMA and compared to boxing, no, it's not less safe. And if you really want to look at the numbers, it's actually safer. Yeah, it's just so cool to see, like, the different evolutions of the sport. And I know we're getting more into the regulatory minutia, but I don't care. It's my show. I love this kind of stuff. I mean, just, yeah, see, yeah, just seeing a lot of stuff, though, with, like, I don't know, the approval of, like, the unified, you know, bare-knuckle rules approved by the ABC, that of which you were a technical knowledge expert for. I mean, something like that, I feel like, will also really serve the sport long form going forward. I felt like when the unified rules were instantiated in mixed martial arts, it really served it quite a bit. I would think the same would apply to Bare Knuckle. Yeah, no, and that's true. And David Feldman and I were uh, in the conference room at the ABC meeting in Las Vegas when they passed. Um, there was not a single no vote. And it was unanimous consent. There were a couple of commissions that abstained, but not a single commission voted no. And I said to David Feldman, you might not fully realize this, but this is the biggest thing that happened to be KFC since our first show. And I think he knew what he was saying, what I was saying, but now we're heading into December from August when that passed, and David Feldman knows fully what I'm saying. Immediately, in the wake of that meeting, Oregon came on board. Um, immediately. And Utah came on board immediately. You see, we're going to Salt Lake on December 2nd for BKFC 56. Oklahoma was uh, was on board um, by the end of by the end of September. We're having states reach out to us and say, now that you have the unified rules, now that you have the endorsement of the ABC, uh, we're ready to look at bare knuckle. And 
Honestly, man, it's exactly what happened with MMA. Art Davey had exited the UFC by then, but in 2001, Big John McCarthy really was the architect of this, working with the Fertitas, working with the New Jersey State Athletic Commission to pass the original unified rules of MMA, and that exploded the sport. I mean, I'm, I can remember a time, I live in Kansas City, there was no athletic commission in Kansas, and in Missouri, MMA was unregulated. You would go to a boxing show, then the commission would get up and leave, and then they would trot out guys, and they would call it NHB. And it was technically, wink, wink, illegal to do pro-MMA in Missouri. And I'm not talking that long ago. So the unified rules happen in MMA, the sport explodes, and I think we're going to see, and we're already seeing the same trajectory for bare knuckle. Yeah, and I feel like that'll become more and more evident as we, you know, encroach more into 2024 and see how that calendar year plays out. But just kind of redirecting the focus to BKFC 56, because understandably a lot of attention on this headliner with Mike Perry and Eddie Alvarez vying for the King of Violence title. I mean, you were talking about Bellator earlier and as far as like the commentary work there and Eddie, obviously a former lightweight champion in that promotion and both guys just such a tremendous body of work that perfectly suits them for this kind of title fight, I think. Like, what are your thoughts on this headliner coming up? First of all, they're two of my favorite guys in the business, and I texted both of them this week telling them that I couldn't wait to see them. Eddie's a guy I've known since 2010 in Bellator. Um, just uh, nothing but a great guy. Great family man, great fighter. The class which he's comported himself with throughout his career through Bellator, through the UFC, in the one championship, and now with us, that's the Eddie Alvarez I know. Mike Perry I actually met when I was commentating for Chael Sonnen when he was running his promotion submission underground, and we had those shows on UFC Fight Pass. And I give I, I give everyone the benefit of the doubt. I like everybody until they prove it me. <laughs> Not to like them, which very rarely happens, thankfully, in my life. But obviously there was a lot of talk about Mike Perry, but I go in as I always am. So let's see what Mike's about, because I'm naturally going to like him. And I love Mike Perry. Mike Perry's the coolest. I genuinely, genuinely like both people a lot. They are, they are very different people, but they're both super professional when it comes to being professional fighters in MMA and in bare knuckle. They're really, truly two of my favorite guys in the sport. And it's cliche to say styles make fight, but if there's ever a time to trot out that cliche, it's on this one. Styles will make this fight. I really believe Mike Perry and Eddie Alvarez are incapable of having a boring fight with anyone in any fighting discipline. Put the two of them together in BKFC, and I think this is going to be extremely special. And some cool fights in the heavyweight division, for sure, providing a bit of clarity for that weight class, just with Alan Belcher previously having been the heavyweight champion and then taking like some glove boxing and then bare-knuckle MMA fights thereafter. Like It seems like this Ben Rothwell and Todd Duffy fight has been kind of discussed as like a potential title eliminator, depending on how things kind of play out, but also Arnold Adams versus Mick Terrell, the rematch for the vacant belt. Can you kind of talk about both of those fights? Because those seem huge for like the heavyweight hierarchy going forward. Right, absolutely. So, you know, Ben Rothwell was someone I actually commentated him way back, 2009, in Affliction. And we reconnected right after he signed with BKFC, came to one of our shows at Seminole Hard Rock in Hollywood, Florida, and we talked and caught up. And I think the world of Ben. 
Todd Duffy is a guy who I've known for quite some time. Todd started calling me and asking me um, what I thought about BKFC and did I enjoy working there? And he was thinking about this. This is like 2020, 2021. And I told him it's the best place I've ever worked for. And I reminded him I've worked for Pride and Bellator. It was the best place I ever worked. So I know it took time for Todd to figure out his contract and to figure out exactly if this was right for him. Um, he fought in KSW against Phil DeFries, who I know from M1, and, and uh, in a rematch, they did fought in the UFC, too. That fight didn't go Todd's way, and now he's here with us. It's just so intriguing, because Todd is a smaller heavyweight with massive power. If anybody goes back and watches when Todd beat Neil Grove, when Neil Grove was basically the second best heavyweight in Bellator and he was able to fight in India's Super Fight League and the power that Todd shows against Neil Grove who is massive you see that in Todd Duffy and Ben Rothwell is a massive guy is so amazingly athletic this is such a cool fight for me now the heavyweight title fight is also really intriguing Nick Terrell is a guy I've gotten to know. Um, again, because my wife is English, sometimes I'll hit it off quicker with English people, and, and I was telling them I can speak British English and American English, and um, I always have to translate because he has a thick Northern English accent, so I'll translate for yeah. a spectacular guy. Arnold Adams, AJ, he fought our very first fight, and I didn't know him. I knew who he was, but I felt like we really bonded on BKFC1. I think everybody on that card bonded at BKFC1. And for someone who never accomplished what he wanted to do in MMA, what he's been able to accomplish is one of the best fighters in the world in bare knuckle. That's really special. You know, Mick Terrell will tell you that the first time they fought, he, he uh, didn't know it at the time, but uh, he was suffering from COVID and he got very sick right afterwards. That's in the public domain. I'm not saying anything I shouldn't there. And AJ Adams uh, will tell you that he had a great night, but he has so much respect for McTrell. Here's what I will tell you. In all the fighter meetings in Chris Blytlin, I and I do this in every promotion I commentate for, so it's not unique to BKFC. It's just what I do as a commentator. But we always sit down, and in BKFC, it's Chris Blytlin, myself, 15, 20 minutes, everybody on the card, to be main event, the prelims, it doesn't matter. And all of the AJ Adams fights that I've done, which is every one from the BKFC, the most respect and reverence that he's ever shown in our fighter meeting is, is for McTrell going into that first fight. So these are two really tactical fighters. I think because they're so powerful, it gets lost at just how tactical they are, but they're such skillful, tactical, bare-knuckle fighters. Really intriguing fight. Yeah, I feel like that'll really show like the fight IQ and the refinement both of those guys have. That's a great way to describe it, but another compelling rematch on the card with Christine Faria and Beck Rawlings knuckling up and towing the line for the flyweight belt. That was kind of a cool fight in a certain sense for me, and I'm sure you can relate to it since you've, you know, been with BKFC literally from the jump, but I almost felt like the rhetoric leading into that first fight among some of the, I guess, like, newer fans to the fold, like, they almost weren't really aware that Rawlings was kind of, like, the initial champion on the circuit in a certain regard, like, her earlier work. I guess. So I feel like maybe this rematch is probably getting its, yeah. Right, no, Beck Rawlings came in and uh, the original Queen of Bare Knuckles, she fought on and won on BKFC's 1, 2, and 4. 
And unfortunately, BKFC wasn't able to keep her at the time. She went to Bellator, and fortunately, when went all the way around, she came back to us. I think Beck Rawlings is a spectacular person. She's overcome so much in her personal life. She's always positive. She's always happy. I know she's a great mom. Um, her husband, Adrian, who's a professional boxer, is such a cool guy. and They just always radiate great energy when you're around them. The uh, I know Beck Rawlings, when she came back, was obviously very disappointed in the way the Christine Faria fight went. Christine Faria is someone who I think epitomizes what BKFC was all about. Because Beck Rawlings was obviously known, and, and I would say that she was certainly a star from what she accomplished in the UFC and coming into BKFC. Christine Faria, you know, she had had a couple of three fights in Invicta, but she was a mid-card fighter. She had a couple of fights in Lion Fight. She was not well-known. And working her way, as I like to say, from the undercard to the mid-card to the main events to a dominant champion. You know, we've seen Lorenzo Hunt do that. We saw uh, A.J. Adams do that, um, Kai Stewart. But she probably epitomizes more than anyone in BKFC to do that perseverance. She's someone who lost her second fight in BKFC to Helen Peralta, but got better and better and better and better to where it, you, one could make an argument that of all of the champions, male and female on BKFC, she has been the most dominant. This is such an intriguing fight because it was such a competitive fight the first time around. Again, it was obviously stopped on cuts from Beck Rawlings. Beck was so upset on that. These are two really respectful people. I don't think you'll see any trash talk. Christine is always respectful, and I, I think it's give respect, get respect. I think you're just going to see a really interesting technical fight between these two. And you did mention Kai Stewart. I mean, his upcoming title defense with his featherweight gold on the line against Howard Davis is so compelling, too. I mean, cool to see that lineage develop in as far as, like, he cemented himself as the inaugural champion and now Kai Stewart looking to get that first defense or, you know, for Howard Davis potentially cementing that sophomore champion in the division. So, huge one there, too. And if you think, too, you know, we talk about people in BKFC who have come from the UFC or someone like Austin Crowd or Pauli Malignaggi, who is a legitimate major organization world champion uh, in professional boxing. And then you see, see people like Howard Davis and Kai Stewart, who, you know, Howard Davis had one professional boxing bout, was an amateur boxer. Kai Stewart had Amy MMA and was actually a college student and a college wrestler when he came to us. And they figured out this sport quickly. They're both incredibly athletic. They're both incredibly smart fighters. They figure things out. Very different body types. And Chris Lytle and I always talk on our broadcast in BKFC about a range fight. This is one of those quintessential range fights. Howard Davis is much taller. He's much longer. He has the reach. He throws the straight punches. Ty Stewart continues to come in establish his game plan, use that heavy forward pressure, use those wrestling level changes to keep winning fights. So 145 was the last um, title for the men for BKFC to give in the divisions. And uh, there was a delay on that. It seemed like there were a lot of 35ers and 55ers, not a lot of 45ers. But suddenly we've gotten really deep at 45. And this is a, this is a great showcase fight for both. Kai Stewart, his first fight is the champion. And Howard Davis, who has absolutely looked dominant in his recent run in BKFC. 
Yeah, I mean, so many compelling fights. I mean, we could be talking for a couple hours about it. I mean, we got, like, Jimmy Rivera and Jeremy Stevens, too. I mean, just incredible stuff, right? Yeah, no, and Jeremy Stevens is someone I, I always liked and always admired as a fighter. I, I actually had never met him until on Fight Week in April when I commentated with Sean Porter um, the, uh, the Roy Jones Jr. Anthony Pettis straight boxing show. And on the undercard was, uh, was uh, the rematch from the UFC, Jose Aldo versus Jeremy Stevens. It was a six-round fight. They fought to a draw. I think that was a fair result. But uh, I told Jeremy Stevens when I met him in the fighter interviews on that week, I was like, dude, you're someone I've really liked for a long time. I'm so honored I get to commentate you. And afterwards, I said to him, ah, that was great. Yeah, what a pleasure as a commentator. I'm not sure if you had a chance to see that fight. I believe it's on YouTube. It's a really good boxing match. I mean, Stevens and Aldo both really unloaded. They were tactical. They were technical. They showed their power. And David Feldman actually asked me at one point, you know, who are some people out that we should look at? And I'm not saying he signed Jeremy Stevens because of me, because there are a few people in the inner circle who David Feldman asked these questions. But I said, Jeremy Stevens. I said, he looked great against Jose Aldo. He has hands. He's still very much in the prime of his career, and he's a big star. So I'm happy it worked out for him as well in this fight. Jimmy Rivera, I actually commentated Jimmy. He was an undercard guy in Bellator. When I was in Bellator and they would bring in the local ticket sellers, I guess they did that even <laughs> after I left. That was pretty much the run of form for Bellator throughout, to bring in local ticket sellers. But when we would fight in Atlantic City, uh, they would bring in Jimmy Rivera. And Jimmy was winning and winning. And if you look back historically, there were a lot of guys who were prelim and mid-card guys in the Bellator era that I commentated with Jimmy Smith, 2010 through 2015, who, for whatever reason, were never signed and then went to the UFC and were great. And that was Jimmy Rivera. And when Jimmy Rivera came available, I reminded David Feldman how I commentated him in, in uh, Bellator had just how dominant I thought he was in the UFC and what a great signing. So for some reason, I guess the reason is because this is such a stacked card. I don't see a lot of media on this fight, but wow, this is a great fight. Uh, another part of the country, and this is your main event. Oh yeah, and I think that's kind of the story of this card Like you were talking about, like, the looming Esteban Rodriguez fight against Keegan Vandermeer. I mean, that could be placed very highly on, you know, most cards for sure. But we're talking about Bellator a bit. And I did kind of, you know, mention this to Jimmy Rivera when I was able to speak to him. And I feel like I'd especially be remiss if I didn't get your thoughts because you were such a key part of that brand for so long. Like, what are your thoughts on that recent PFL and Bellator merger that's been making news? I thought I, I'd been hearing, well, I, I started hearing the Bellators for sale over two years ago. And one who follows the industry could see the direction that this was headed. And, you know, it, it's not an apples to apples comparison because the TV landscape continues to change and people, it's the term cord cutters, right? Where people are, are now streaming, they're getting rid of cable and it's, it's unsubscribing and, and dropping their satellite and cable companies and things like that. But the reality is when we were on spike with Bellator and I'm talking like 2013, 2014, 2015, our average was something like 720,000 viewers a show. And again, it's not apples to apples because the TV universe has certainly changed in North America since that era. We're talking, you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago, but by the end of that run on Showtime, they were struggling to get 70,000 viewers. 
What I saw with Bellator, what worked in the Bjorn Revenue era, when Bjorn hired Jimmy Smith and myself from M1, was that we had consistency. For 12 weeks in a row, same time, same network, and we bounced around on networks from Fox Sports and that MTV2 to ultimately spike, but same day, same time, same network, 12 weeks in a row, you were going to get a Bellator. So it was easy to become a Bellator fan. Uh, as the, the promotion progressed and they got away from that format when Bjorn was pushed out and Scott Coker came in, Scott Coker wanted to do a more traditional schedule as he had had great success with in, in uh, Strike Force. You then had a TV partner who maybe would change your days or change your times. And then obviously when Spike rebrands as Paramount Network, they go to CBS Sports Network, which was so tough. That's a time by network. It's not even monitored by Nielsen in this country. A lot of people have CBS Sports Network. It's tough to find people who know what channel CBS Sports Network is on their cable system. And then ultimately behind the, the paywall of Showtime. And this is how the era had changed. I know there was talk with Bjorn Rebney back in 2010, like, maybe we'll go to Showtime. In 2010, going to Showtime, that would have been the greatest thing that could happen to Bellator. Fast forward 10 years later, going to Showtime was probably, in hindsight, the worst thing that could have happened to Bellator. So I'll always have fond memories of the era that I worked there with uh, under Bjorn Rebney. Um, it's the second best experience of my career. The best experience is what I'm living now with David Feldman and BKFC. But the early part of my Bellator run, when it was Bjorn, and it really felt like us against the world, and we had Ben Askren, Mike Chandler, Hector Lombard, Alexander Volkov, um, Blagoy Ivanov, Michael Venom Page, who was just a prelim guy before he broke out, uh, Joe Warren, Pat Curran, Daniel Strauss, Eddie Alvarez, Cole Conrad, phenomenal. That was such a special time for me in my career, and I always feel very, very fondly about it. With me and Bellator now, I've continued to watch it. Big uh, Joe McCarthy is one of my best friends. I still have a few friends who, who fight there, like um, Austin Vanderford, Rafael Stotts, and I watch it, but then I watch everything. So I think this was a predictable outcome based on what has been happening to Bellator in the last three years. It'll be interesting to see if PFL does operate it as a separate brand. Uh, and not to sound cynical, but I was the commentator for Pride when the UFC bought it. And uh, the last thing I was told in Pride was, we'll see you in six weeks. And that was uh, April yeah. of 2007. <laughs> so there was talk. The UFC was going to run Pride as a separate brand. We'll see the evolution of that. Um, it's still very much, I think, to be determined the direction they go. But for all intents and purposes, Bellator is now in the in the uh, history compartment of MMA, along with Strikeforce and Hook and Shoot and <laughs> IFL and M1 and Affliction and a lot of other people. Yeah, I mean. I get what you're saying. It definitely kind of, you know, did have that sort of like writing on the wall kind of dynamic towards the end. And yeah, it will be interesting. That was kind of my thought too. Like I try to be the similar kind of way, like err on the side of being optimistic, but like, I don't know, the historical precedence of companies buying out other MMA companies. It's always like, oh yeah, you know, business as usual, we'll keep it going. And it, I mean, rarely happens, but it seems like at least for 2024, they'll keep that going. Well, and it makes sense to do champion versus champion as a major show in 2024. Will that make sense in 2025? The further you get away from running Bellator and Bellator being as a stand being a standalone brand, 
the less that makes sense as you move forward. So right now it makes a lot of sense. And I know that internationally, certainly in some markets like the UK, the Republic of Ireland, France, Italy, Israel, Bellator has a much bigger name than PFL. So to run shows as Bellator rather than PFL with that branding, to me, that makes a lot of business sense. Will that be the case in three years? I don't know. And will PFL want to say, hey, this old Bellator brand is actually bigger than our current PFL brand? I don't know. I don't know if that comes down to ego and hubris or if that comes down to good business sense. I really don't know. My one experience with PFL, I commentated PFL 1 on on Fight TV uh, October of 2017 with Boss Rudin. That was my one and only experience with PFL. So other than that, I just watched the shows. Yeah, just such an interesting landscape for, you know, combat sports. I'm sure you can, you know, enjoy that as well. I mean, there's so much out there to take in. I mean, there's bare knuckle MMA, there's Muay Thai, Lethway. I mean, someone who grew up, you know, watching like PKA, I'm sure you're excited at the landscape nowadays. You probably watched it on Rogers or TSN, you're being Canadian, but yeah, there was a staple on early ESPN. Yeah, so classic, and it looks like they're trying to bring that back. I was talking to... Joe Corley and whatnot. I was talking to Superfoot Bill Wallace a bit last year too. So yeah, just to say an exciting time to be into combat sports of all persuasions, it seems like. I still remember the first time that I saw the ultimate fighter on Spike. And because I'm someone who watched UFC one live on pay-per-view and all the subsequent UFCs on pay-per-view until it was pulled from my, uh, my pay-per-view and my cable system. Then I had to wait and, wait for blockbuster video like a lot of us did in that era but the first time i saw it on spike it was like i, I couldn't believe it that's it, imprinted in my brain and my memory like it was so shocking to see mma and you know uh, I'm, I'm a fan from that uh era literally of november 12 1993 ufc one and through the, the mid 90s and the late 90s where you know, Mars reality fighting. Oh, it's on pay-per-view, I'll buy it. Extreme challenge, I'll buy it. Wow, there's hook and shoot a blockbuster, I'll rent it. Because I was so starved to see MMA and there were no alternatives. And now as combat sports has not only exploded but become legitimized and standardized and recognized and respected largely as a legitimate sport, which obviously it should be, that we have that. And also in the era of streaming with UFC Fight Pass and with Fight and the big AFC app where you see other shows. It's, it's a really great time to be a combat sports fan, and I think if you're a combat sports fan under 30, it's impossible to even think about that. It would be like people our age thinking about, wow, what was it like when you only had radio or only had black and white TV? You can't even conceptualize how difficult it was, you know, of in the 80s and the 90s. And I know I'm older than you, but in the 80s and the 90s where, you know, there, there might be a boxing that would show up on a Saturday afternoon on ABC, NBC, or CBS, and then you got your boxing on Showtime and, Fox, Showtime and HBO and then some pay-per-views and that was it. And there were the UFC pay-per-views and the randos like Mars Reality Fighting, uh, Extreme Challenge, and that was it. And to have so many opportunities to watch so many fights and so many different combat sports, it's really amazing. Truly, and I feel like I could ask you a ton more questions, but I also do want to be mindful of your time. I can't be taking up your whole day and everything, but, you know... (laughs) We can certainly do this again. You're a great interviewer, and I'm I'm happy to do this. You ask me really smart questions. 
Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. That's a huge compliment. I mean, you've done a ton of interviews over the years, so I don't even know that you would remember it per se, or I guess to say wouldn't hold you to it, but I interviewed you, I guess, probably like a decade ago or so or close to it when I was in college about a lot of kind of what we're talking about now, like MMA and just combat sports in general. And yeah, definitely inspired me to do more. No, I absolutely remember that. Yeah, great times for sure and cool to see how everything's kind of developed but just in kind of echoing that prior sentiment of wanting to be mindful of your time i'm curious if maybe there's a final parting thought you'd want to add as we're kind of wrapping up it looks like you've got a special price out there for is this legal i mean we've been talking about art davies and ufc one a bit so maybe you want to shout that out or just in general if you have any parting thought i suppose i'll always talk about art and i'll always talk about the book thank you so um the book which is in development for a film and has been for some time but um, as our producers tell us, this will be that quote-unquote major motion picture. I always tease art, well, we don't want something just to go to Showtime Extreme. I don't even think there's going to be a Showtime Extreme. I'm going to have to find a new reference, but we're um, back in the day one would say a straight DVD. But no, it's, it's, uh, we have an option with a major studio and a major producer and a major director attached. I wish I could say more because I did test being coy, but I'll probably get an angry phone call if I say more. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, it's based on the book that, that Art and I wrote. It's Art's memoir of how he created the UFC. And in 1989, Art Davey was a 42-year-old advertising executive in San Diego who had this idea how to sell beer for his client, uh, Wisdom Imports, who had Tecate in the U.S. And he thought, let's do a style versus style fighting tournament. And in the pitch meeting, um, Wisdom Imports told him that was about the stupidest idea they ever heard, but Art couldn't let it go quit his job, invested his money, found Corian Gracie and John Milius and some Four Entertainment Group and Big John McCarthy, and four years later launched the UFC. So it's the story of, it's not Art's autobiography, it's a memoir. It's the story of basically the four years of Art's life that he spent launching the UFC, concluding with the after party of UFC 1. Uh, so around the anniversary of the first UFC, which is November 12th, we do a special promotion of uh, $14.95, and that's a symbolic price because I think I think the retail, like if you got it on Amazon or at, at a bookstore, it's $24.95, but $14.95 was the pay-per-view cost of UFC 1. So if anyone is interested, we've actually I've been overwhelmed on the, uh, I was coming back from the post office, actually shipping books out, <laughs> uh, overwhelmed by the interest that we have on that. Um, and I'll explain why I'm shipping them out here so get them from me, is that uh, uh, we have it so you can go to isthislegalthebook.com, isthislegalthebook.com, where you guys can hit me up on social media, and I'm always extremely responsive. The short version of a very long story is when we were approached by a bunch of producers, somewhat unexpectedly, are now we're able to negotiate our our book rights back from our publisher, uh, and part of that was we got the last few copies of the original first edition, uh, so which live in my house. So there aren't many left of the first edition. We anticipate there'll be a new updated edition tying into the film when that occurs. But so we still have the hardback, the uh, first edition of Is This Legal? Again, isthislegalthebook.com, $14.95. I think we're going to extend that through the end of the year if people want to get it, but it is the real true story vetted by big john mccarthy himself who was there of how art created the ufc yeah incredible stuff so many cool things 
on the horizon coming up. BKFC, the book, the movie. I mean, just an incredible time for sure. I appreciate you coming on and giving great insights in the spirit of that and everything. Thank you so much. Hopefully we'll see you at uh, BKFC in Canada if not sooner. Yeah, I mean, I would love that for sure. Definitely a big 2024 coming up for BKFC. But thanks so much for coming on Bare Knuckle Radio, Sean. Very excited for BKFC 56 on December 2nd and really just what's to come in the new year. But until then, man, you have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for the great questions. We'll do this again. This episode of Bouts Talking Bouts is brought to you by Bare Knuckle Betting Shark. Winning parlays. If you're looking for them in BKFC, you got to be checking out BK Bet Shark. Here's the thing. $50 buys, you get a personalized bet slip. It's based on your own budget. You can be flexible. It is what works for you. And this guy's got the receipts. You can check out all the winning tickets. You can peep them, and you can do so at Bare Knuckle Betting Shark. Check him out on Instagram and get with it. Got them personalized betting slips going on. $50 buy.